I'm just going to come right out and say it. I don't like Super. I tried. I really did. But at the end of the day, I just don't think it really comes together. Shut up, Cap! is an in-depth story analysis and retrospective. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. Super is the last film James Gunn made before he was swept up by Marvel and given the keys to Guardians of the Galaxy, which he turned into a beloved franchise watched by families the world over. There's some edge to those movies. They're about morally ambiguous heroes, some of which could be considered anti-heroes, but good always prevails at the end, and its central protagonist, Peter Quill, is a guy with a good heart who generally does the right thing. You can see Gunn's violent tendencies here and a pinch of his raunchy sensibilities, but you'd never know he was the guy who made Slither and Super if his name wasn't on it. Or maybe I should say, if you went back to these movies, you'd never guess this was the guy who made Guardians of the Galaxy. And that's an absolute quagmire to me, because those films, especially the first one, do a really impressive balancing act in creating a dramatic narrative with comedy at its heart, where the humor doesn't overtake the film and make its characters unbelievable, unreasonable, or completely unlikable just to facilitate jokes. Guardians is a comedy, but it's also a coherent and compelling drama as well. The comedy is always grounded in the situation, again, at least in the first film, and it never feels to me like it's cheating the characterization or the dilemma, and it doesn't feel emotionally manipulative. That tightrope act always impressed me, and it's the reason I love that movie. So it's astounding that the guy who made that also made its exact opposite, and just four years earlier, and also in the superhero genre. While Guardians carefully brings its audience into its strange world and attempts to win us over with its quirks, its sometimes offbeat comedy, its violence, and its morally ambiguous heroes, Super couldn't care less if you're along for the ride. If you fall out of the car ten minutes in, it just drives away without you. It breaks all the rules, but doesn't care to prove that it understands them first. It doesn't really care if you're watching in the first place. And I can respect that up to a point. I'm only comparing this to Guardians to say it's remarkable the same director and writer made both of these things. Except that you can see some of Gunn's old trademarks on Guardians. It just watches like a guy who was drunk his whole career and finally sobered up to make a big movie for Marvel. And to explain that he appealed to my own sensibilities with Guardians and did not hardly at all with this film. It is really refreshing to watch a movie that isn't trying to be for everyone, that is fine with carving out a niche, that's cult, that just wants to tell the story it wants to tell for whoever happens to appreciate it. I think a totally violent, cathartic, angry superhero movie could work even if it might not appeal to me. I just don't think this one does. Humor is entirely subjective, and so people who find the vulgar humor, the brutal stuff, the gross stuff, the awkward stuff, and the intentionally, insanely uncomfortable stuff inherently amusing, well, you've already fastened your seatbelt while I'm too trepidatious to even get in the car, and I'm still just looking inside the cab from a distance. But there are other movies that don't tickle my personal fancy that I can still evaluate on their own terms and recognize are achieving what they set out to do wonderfully. And sometimes those movies win me over and make me a fan, regardless of the fact that I don't care for many other things that are like them. Kick-Ass, Deadpool, and Sin City all do that for me. 
The timing of release doesn't help either, although I don't hold crummy luck against it. It's not like Super is a cash-in on Kick-Ass. It came out the very same year, and it's not its fault that a similar film based on material that was already popular among comic fans and given a blockbuster budget compared to the indie project this was, with major actors working for scale and folks like Michael Rooker driving all the way to Louisiana just to be in it. But Kick-Ass does do a lot of what Super sets out to better than it does. If, like Kick-Ass, Super managed to emotionally resonate with me while delivering on ultra-violent crime comedy, it seems to be the goal of both. I'd just say something was in the air in 2010 and two great movies imagining what superheroes operating in the real world would be like came out at the same time. But Super was written several years earlier and watches like a movie out of place and out of time that isn't aware of just how much superheroes have been explored on screen. This would have been fresher and much more shocking circa 2005 or 6, not just because Kick-Ass hadn't come out yet, but because the most sophisticated and envelope-pushing mainstream superhero movies hadn't happened yet, like The Dark Knight and Iron Man. Super really wants to be the first movie about superheroes in a more grounded, real setting, and I don't think it does a great job of presenting that because it's inconsistent about how grounded its world is supposed to be. But at the time Gunn initially wrote the movie, the novelty of the premise might have been enough for a lot of viewers to overlook that. That novelty isn't as great in 2010. I don't generally care for movies like this, and that makes it more difficult to appreciate. It wouldn't likely win me over on a pure comedy level. If I don't find a comedy funny, I need something else to latch onto. And if all it has going for it is laughs, I just can't be won over. I don't like some of the more vulgar stuff in Deadpool, but I think it tells a decently compelling story, with characters I found interesting and who resonated with me, and with a love story I especially got wrapped up in. This is a movie that wants to be offbeat, wants to subvert expectations, wants to shock me, wants to make me feel uncomfortable, hopes I'll laugh at its immature gags, but also kind of wants to tell a good story, and a traditional enough story with a protagonist who grows and matures, who learns a valuable lesson at the end, is a better person for it, and a story that presents itself as poignant and important that it just can't get away with some of these shocks for shock's sake and wild and random twists. Your movie doesn't have to appeal to everyone, or even be understood by everyone, but good stories not everyone appreciates communicate what they are, as best as they can, and take the approach that other people who are like-minded to the artist might like it, not that you have to be the artist to like it. I realize that's going to sound unfair to fans of this movie, and there are a sizable number of people, at least of those who actually saw this movie, and it didn't perform particularly well, who like it. Those viewers will probably say, I just don't get it. And that's completely accurate. I don't get super. It's not for me. And we all come from different backgrounds, with different experiences, and different things resonate with us for different reasons. But on a story level, I don't think Super is playing fair with me, and I can't shake the feeling that if Gunn wrote this movie now, with the storytelling experience he has a decade after making this movie and more than 15 years after initially writing the script, which he says in the commentary he hardly changed, he might communicate his intentions better and tell a tighter, more consistent story. It watches like a movie made by a college student, not by a guy in his late 30s, but it seems like he still had a lot of growing up to do. Because while competently and creatively filmed, and while there are some jokes I laughed at, and some dramatic stuff I legitimately liked in a vacuum, the whole thing feels like a college experiment. 
It feels like a first draft. Like there might be a really good story here, but it's so focused on being different and then making its big point at the end that it doesn't organically get us there. Or thinks that because it's an out there indie comedy that doesn't have to think of itself as a commercial animal, not concerned at all about whether it sells, that it also doesn't have to concern itself with whether the place it gets its characters to by the end is believable or whether they resonate with the audience. In the commentary, both Gunn and the film star, Rain Wilson, by the way, how do you get a name as cool as Rain with two N's? Talk about how totally jarring the movie is. They're proud that they've made something that defines genre. One minute it's a drama, then it's an offbeat comedy, then there's a cartoon dance opening. Although it's weird how big of a deal they make out of that. Lots of comedies have animated opening titles that set the tone of the movie and don't blow my mind because suddenly I'm looking at cartoons when I was seeing real people before. I mean, the thing that is weird about that intro is that we see all these characters in animated form before they're presented to us in the film, and it feels like part of the movie is being spoiled for us. That watches more like end credits than opening credits. But when a good movie is hard to classify, it's because it's in a league of its own. It carves out its own space, but still feels of a piece. It doesn't squarely fit in a formula we've seen before. Maybe it doesn't follow a three-act structure. This one, by the way, does, to the point where there are fades to a solid color that denote the act breaks. Maybe they're dead serious, but you also laugh constantly. Maybe the pacing is counterintuitive to what you're used to, but works for this particular piece. Fight Club is like that. Blade Runner is like that. The first season of Lost is like that. Is it a standard primetime drama? Is it a sci-fi thing? Is it an X-Files-esque supernatural mystery show? I mean, by the end, I'm not sure it knew, but difficult to classify freshness was a lot of its appeal and why it was so popular. Part of the reason I like the spirit more than most, despite its many flaws, is that it's a strange comedy that develops an identity all its own. It's not what anyone wanted and doesn't always succeed as parody or farce, but when it does, I love it. I'm also not saying that tonal shifts are never warranted. I don't think this is a bad movie necessarily because it jarringly jumps from comedy to tragedy and then back again. Sometimes life is like that. If it's deliberate and serves the story, or in the case of a thing that's more about mood and making the audience feel a certain way, if it serves the artistry of it, it can work. This is deliberate, but I think it's about manufacturing that effect before it's about serving a story. It feels self-indulgent and gimmicky. And so the piece struggles to find a real identity. It wants to tell a story about an outcast who's dealt a bad hand, is insecure, and hasn't found himself yet. Who's living a life that isn't for him, and has to get comfortable in his own skin before he sets himself on the right path. And it wants to be a catharsis for a creator who is frustrated with the injustices of the world, and in his innermost, darkest places, would like to punish and destroy everything that creates unfairness. If those two things can be done effectively in tandem, I don't think Gunn is pulling it off. To revel in the violence the way this does, to relish the vengeance, to put us in the shoes of a man who lets himself go absolutely bananas and do what we have always wanted to do when someone cuts in front of us in line, you gotta go the whole nine yards and just let that guy be insane, damned the consequences. If you want to tell a real story, no matter how heightened, that the audience can relate to, even while you're doing that, then there have to be actual consequences. Maybe Frank goes to prison at the end, but comes to accept that, because he thinks he did God's good work. Maybe he dies at the end and happy and realizes doing this was the only thing that could make him happy. You know, kind of a Walter White situation. Or maybe it's such a heightened and twisted world that looks nothing like ours. Maybe it's an exaggeration, even a satire. 
and the world coalesces to Frank's will. People accept his extreme methods and nobody tries to stop him because they all appreciate a man standing up to evil. Maybe he sets a violent but noble example in the eyes of the people of his city and creates a vigilante state, maybe even some kind of anarchistic state. Go full tilt with the therapeutic insanity and say something about how great and complex and seemingly unfixable our world is by contrasting it with a clearly unreal world where violence really is the answer. Or tell a grounded story about a guy who tries this and discovers there are real consequences to violence. As always, I don't want to rewrite the story Gunn wrote, and I'll discuss in more detail why I don't think it works by the end. But I just think he's got two agendas here that aren't meshing, and there's plenty going for each of them separately. I think for the overall sensibilities of this movie and the things he seems most interested in putting on screen, the realistic what-if-superheroes-actually-existed angle is the wrong one. For the cathartic experience of watching a guy called by God who looks at things in black and white brutally maim and murder everyone who's ruining the world. In the commentary, Gunn is passionate about his dark side, about how he's not always sure how sane he is personally, and how badly he needed to tell this story because he wanted to express that. I think that's valid. I think that's bold. I think that's vulnerable. And I appreciate that he probably wanted Frank to find himself at the end to suggest that people who feel this way aren't crazy or any crazier than anyone else. The problem is most of us don't act on those impulses. And by the end of the film, Frank seems vindicated in his maiming and murdering. He kills the bad people who stole his wife from him. He gets more comfortable in his own skin, his real skin, not the costume that he calls his skin while he's in the process of figuring out what he's all about, which I like. And after all that carnage, he's finally happy. No, he's not doing it anymore, but the movie seems to be saying that he didn't have a break from reality that he wasn't crazy. He says in the voiceover at the end that sometimes what things look like and what they are are two different things, and in this context, I don't know what that means. I don't mean to say that a person can't come back from doing horrible, violent things, or that if a person acts on wild impulses, they can never become well-adjusted. But what Gunn says in the commentary and what I'm getting from the movie are also two different things. He says that Frank goes down a dark path, that what he's doing is wrong. But the movie seems to say, even though Frank stops doing it, that he was maybe totally in the right because it got him his wife back and because it was the extreme, mad experience he needed to find his confidence. It just makes me feel like I have to be James Gunn himself to get this movie. The film could constantly defy expectation and get away with it if only it didn't want to tell a pretty traditional story by the end. This story can't end with the guy who bashed a man's head in for cutting in line, who blew guys away with pipe bombs, and who taught a young girl how to be a serial killer, becoming the nice uncle who savors every moment with his nieces, and putting all of his wonderful moments on the wall now that he's learned to find joy in more than just the two he started with. He can't be traditionally sympathetic. He could be sympathetic, like the Punisher is, where we don't condone his actions, but we understand where he's coming from, and we can see the grains of truth in his extreme philosophy. I like the speech he has to Jacques, his drug-dealing arch-nemesis, who takes his wife out from under him by preying on her drug addiction. His laundry list of things you don't do. You don't profit on the misery of others! The rules were set a long time ago! They don't! There are moments where I'm totally with him, and I see how his personal injustices got him to this place. But besides gruesomely losing his sidekick, there aren't any consequences for what he does. 
I mean, I guess he loses his wife too, but that was inevitable. I would argue that just losing Libby isn't enough. And maybe Gunn's making the dissenting point that things are that black and white, that some rules just can't be disagreed with. And if someone breaks them intentionally, no matter how trivial a misdemeanor it seems, that person deserves whatever is coming to them. And I might not agree with that belief, and Gunn might not even fully believe in that himself, but might want to make a piece exploring that extreme position, because we all feel that way sometimes. But that doesn't seem to be what he's doing with the rest of it. Not only because he himself calls what Frank does falling to the dark side, but because Libby, the Bolty, who should have stuck with the creeping Bam, because it's just so weird, certainly pays the ultimate price for her actions, and because he doesn't continue that behavior at the end. So I'm left with this heartwarming, uplifting, happy ending about a guy that I stopped sympathizing with as soon as he puts two people in ICU, again, for being rude in line. And I'm expected to appreciate this middle-aged coming-of-age story, which, like so many choices in this movie, seems to be there not because it's the thing that's most naturally arrived to by the actions of the characters, but because it's the last thing we would expect. Taking a hard left at a story like that only works if the audience believes the character makes that choice or that's what would really happen in the context of the piece, depending on how grounded or heightened it is. And we just would never have thought of it. Not because it's the most counterintuitive choice imaginable and makes no sense. That's just cheating to shock an audience. And if you're presenting your protagonist as a guy I'm supposed to relate to on any level, if you're going to call your story grounded on any level, which Gunn does do in the commentary, he says Liv Tyler grounds the movie, then I can't give you a pass on this just because your story is unconventional or quirky or subversive. Super is a random handful of birdie bots every flavored beans. It's flavor after flavor that don't quite go together but taste okay on their own. You know, strawberry, watermelon, until you get to the end and you get rotten egg or vomit. What makes it such a frustrating and disappointing watch for me is that it's one of those movies I'm not even sure I'm not liking until the end. I keep finding reasons to maybe stay with it, to think it might all come together. It starts with a perfectly fine setup, a horrifying premise a lot of people can relate to. What if you thought you were doing okay, that you'd carved your place out in the world, and then you realized it was a lie, that you didn't really belong with your wife or she didn't love you anymore? It's played for nervous laughs, but Frank's tragic backstory and the impetus for his becoming a superhero is an absolute nightmare. And despite his being so pathetic and insecure, I feel for him because he's got no one on his side and he's absolutely the victim in this situation. He's got no recourse and it's heartbreaking. Some drug lord just shows up and sweeps the rug out from under him, taking his wife by getting her re-addicted to drugs. And the whole thing looks consensual enough, like Sarah just left him for another man, that there's no way to prove Jacques has broken any laws. So the obligatory superhero movie detective won't help him. And the other few people who are even in his life, like the lazy cook he works with, tells him to move on with very little sympathy. That's awful and twisted. And I like the religious angle that with nowhere else to turn, he talks to God and thinks he has a vision. This sort of thing might make anybody desperate and delusional, especially a guy who's had a run of bad luck his whole life and who has let the world define him as a loser. 
but I never believe he's out to lunch enough to go as far as he does. It's a very different story from Kick-Ass because Dave isn't a kid who loses his mind and beats up criminals. He's a perfectly normal guy who decides to try to be a superhero and get swept up in a world of extreme personalities. Without Big Daddy and Hit Girl, he'd have probably stopped after the first time he got beaten to a pulp. And yes, he's really violent, but only out of necessity. Part of the point of the story is that in real life, being a superhero would have to be rough and painful. It wouldn't be glamorous. Dave just wants to stop crime and feels like his life amounts to something. In Super, Frank doesn't just want to belong to something. Like a religious fanatic, he thinks God is literally calling him to hurt bad people. After he lands a couple in the hospital and the cops are speaking out publicly against him, he has his Spider-Man No More moment and prays to God, asking if it's time to throw it all away because he doesn't want to get caught and go to jail. But he takes another episode of Holy Avenger, the Christian superhero show that gave him the idea in the first place, saying not to give up on what God has called you to do as a sign that he's supposed to continue. Frank is detached and has an extreme personality, but he's not so far gone that I ever buy he'd be so brutal. I get that he's supposed to feel empowered behind the mask, but he doesn't want to kill anyone, and he later stops his sidekick, Libby, from killing a man with a statue. But when he splits a man's head open with a pipe wrench just for, again, a guy cutting in line, he just as easily could have killed him. And if he's totally deranged and just got lucky there, but never thought that would kill the guy, okay. But again, the ending doesn't match. I'm supposed to believe that this is just a phase this otherwise normal man has to go through to realize there's nothing wrong with him and to accept his limitations and find his confidence. Like he's Rocky or something. While he does get more manic and crazed behind the mask, and I do enjoy the transformation Wilson goes through whenever he's going after criminals. Shut up, crime is great. He doesn't seem like a man possessed so much as a man adopting a persona. When he gets out of costume, he's not like, oh God, what have I done? There's no progression to that point. There's just a part of the movie where Gunn thinks it'll be funny or edgy to have his protagonist almost kill a man for the most mundane, quote, unquote, crime he can think of, and he tries to make it all organic later with a big speech at the end. The speech is good, but even with his all-sin-is-the-same worldview, I don't think Gunn does the character legwork needed to make me believe Frank is this extreme. I also appreciated how naive Frank is at the beginning and how ultra-realistic the movie is about what trying to be a superhero in real life would be like, and why nobody, or at least very few, people have actually attempted it. And I thought maybe it would be even grittier and more grounded than Kick-Ass, which does create a slightly heightened real world to tell its story, but which is consistent about it and plays fair with the audience, at least until the very end with the jetpack. Frank's costume is totally homemade and believable, not like that state-of-the-art Hollywood suit Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man somehow puts together with $100 to his name. I especially like the zipper running down one side on the front. The first two nights Frank goes on patrol, he just sits behind a dumpster waiting for crime to happen and it never does. This is one of the funniest bits in the movie to me. I like the log he makes, trying to act like a professional superhero, but bored out of his wits. It was just a box. The wind was pushing it down the street. I'm not going to just leave it there. I'll pick it up later. That's hilarious. But pretty soon, the movie starts cheating on the realism, falling back on standard superhero movie tropes, and it loses me again. Frank doesn't find any crime at night, but chases down a purse snatcher in broad daylight? What are the odds of that? Seems like every superhero thing has to have a purse snatcher in broad daylight. Although I will say it is pretty consistent with how realistic its injuries are. 
And there are way too many conveniences and coincidences to get us to each story beat. Libby just happens to be having the party she told Frank about when he needs her help after he gets shot. Jacques' thugs just happen to be the only other people standing outside at a gas station when Frank and Libby get there so we can have an action scene and so Libby can save Frank's life and make him rethink firing her. And the most glaring one for me, the detective just happens to look down at a newspaper with an artist's rendering of the Crimson Bolt and realizes it's Frank so that he can show up again at Frank's apartment while Jacques' thugs are there and get shot just to dissolve that thread because Gunn doesn't want to deal with that character anymore. Although I do like how consistent the movie is with the realism of secret identities. If anyone has ever seen Frank or knows his situation, they pretty quickly put together that he has to be the Crimson Bolt. If this is supposed to be more or less the real world, the movie absolutely nails that. My favorite is the guy who butted in line, who isn't fooled at all by Frank walking across the street and changing into the Crimson Bolt in his car. I just saw you! That's pretty good. And while I was naturally put off by some of the immature stuff, Kids peeing on Frank in a flashback 30 seconds in. Eh, at least this movie is letting me know what I'm getting myself into right away, despite the constant tonal shifts. There's some clever stuff and fresh stuff I could sink my teeth into besides the decent hook. I like the idea of an outcast who isn't a typical comic nerd, like Dave and Kick-Ass, who somehow comes up with the idea to be a superhero anyway. That was wish fulfillment for adults who grew up reading comics, and then it all goes horribly wrong in Kick-Ass. Frank doesn't seem to know much of anything about comics or superheroes. He even needs Libby to mention that Batman has a utility belt before he thinks to include one on his costume. He gets the idea from the Holy Avenger, a parody of Bible Man, of all things, with Nathan Fillion as the Bible-quoting superhero, which is perfect and hilarious watching him do something akin to Captain Hammer in an equally disturbing context, but disturbing for totally different reasons. I've never done a rewind on any of that, but I might break down and do an overview of those in the future. But Eric and I have done a couple of blind commentaries on the channel, if you're curious. The movie is spot on with the flavor, corniness, and bad acting of that show, but gets a little self-indulgent with the second episode it shows, where a kid infected by a demon's lust ray wears bondage gear and nipple rings. There's just no way a Christian kid show would get away with that, even while making a point against it. But Gunn doesn't care, and he all but says that in the commentary. So anyway, I like that the superhero idea comes to Frank because of its connection to his faith, and I like how that informs his black and white viewpoint. People do bad things because of the devil's influence, and that's why his wife has been taken. For him, it's the only explanation. No one could be so horrible, so Jacques has to be the devil. And it's easy to justify anything when you believe you're up against not complex people who have made bad choices, but pure evil. And going to Christian mythology takes the superhero notion back to its simplest forms. Golden Age comics. Good guy who stamps out the bad guy and the day is saved. While trying to comment on a world filled with red tape that isn't so simple, but somehow should be. Because we all inherently know right from wrong, at least in the broadest terms. Cutting in line is wrong, molesting children is wrong, profiting on other people's suffering is wrong. If only it were as simple as finding the evil demon that covered all the cafeteria food with sloth to make all the kids lazy, and then bash his head in with a pipe wrench. 
There's something endearing about Frank's initial calling and his childlike view of the world, but taken to its furthest conclusion, it's also scary. Because again, you can justify anything when you think God has given you an authority higher than the law. And of course, it's against due process, and you got one guy deciding who deserves the pipe wrench, etc. All stuff the movie doesn't really get into. But it's a good and different way to get a guy into a costume, and I like it in a world without powers because the guy who's decided he's super thinks there is a supernatural component to it. He says he's chosen by God, and what kind of powers does that give a person anyway? There's also a lot of potential in this cast, partly because they're all played by such top-notch talent. It's amazing the caliber of actors Gunn was able to get to work for as close to free as SAG would allow. This was pretty much just a bunch of people getting together to do something that they were passionate about. And they all show up and put in the sort of work you'd expect on a big movie. Kevin Bacon absolutely does not phone it in as the drug lord slash pimp Jacques. And really interesting that this is right before he does First Class. Jacques, who is wonderfully condescending and hauntingly nice to the people whose lives he completely destroys while complimenting them on how great their eggs are. Two of the movie's legitimately really funny moments for me come from him. First, when he tells Frank not to touch his car. Frank! I'm going, that's not the kind of touching I meant. And then at the end, when he screams, frothing at the mouth, that Sarah loves him more because he's effing interesting. Ellen Page's performance, despite my issues with the character, is inspired, and she elevates a confusing and vague character from the page. She brings a manic, nervous energy and a sense of vulnerability and frustration to the character. Paige isn't afraid to take Libby's neurosis as far as she can, and she totally disappears in the role. And Wilson, of course, brings a lot of layers to Frank, playing the pathetic stuff up for comedy and bringing some of that office humor to the material, but he also brings flashes of real pathos and a sincerity to some of the drama, a dead serious, sober quality, particularly when he decides to be proactive and finally try to take Sarah back from Jacques. And I can't help but wonder what in his own life Wilson might be drawing from in in those moments. He's not a traditional leading man, and that's kind of the point, but he absolutely carries the film and makes me wish he had a more competent screenplay to work with. He gives a performance, I think, on the level of what Woody Harrelson did a year before with Defendor, another movie that accomplishes a lot of what this movie is after quite a bit better. Part of what makes these characters' choices difficult to rectify, though everybody's motivations are pretty clear, I'll give it that, is that they're not drawn enough from the outset. Frank is certainly the most fleshed out character, but we just pay lip service to his upbringing at the beginning, when we see his dad spanking him for having Heather Locklear photos under his bed. That tells us that his father is strict and he was raised under the fear of God, but that's about it. Was his father abusive? I mean beyond spanking with a belt, which wasn't generally considered abuse in those days. Are we meant to see Frank as ultra-sheltered? But what I want a lot more of is Frank's relationship with his wife, Sarah. We know that she was a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, and that she'd led a rough life but was trying to turn it around. And we know that she thought of Frank as her savior, this weird guy who looks at the world differently from other guys she's been with. She marries him simply because he's good, and because, as she tells her sister, who doesn't approve of the engagement, that she believes he might be the only thing that can save her. 
which is interesting. Frank, who was never given the time of day by the opposite sex, is put in the role of hero, and that's not a good foundation to build a long-lasting relationship on, because it's either a temporary arrangement or he's given the unfair responsibility of being her perpetual savior. But the scene with her sister is the only place I get that sense. With what little we see of their early relationship, she seems genuinely attracted to and into Frank. He seems interesting to her. Maybe she rushed into it, maybe it was for the wrong reasons, and maybe the idea is that she traded her drug addiction for Frank and he didn't fit the bill in the long term. But we only get a tiny snapshot of their married life. All I know now is that the passion is gone and the flames died down. The passion is gone and the flames died down. There's a scene where they're in bed together and Frank tries to get frisky, but she's not interested, which is supposed to suggest she's not into him anymore. And we see her getting high with friends, but I don't know what exactly happened that got them here. Were they happy together or was the relationship always a sham? I mean, I get that early Frank thinks that happiness is overrated, but is that the problem? Were they both in denial about what they had together? The movie also doesn't make simple facts about its characters explicit enough. I don't understand that she's a stripper working at Jacques' nightclub until Gunn talks about it in the commentary. He says there's a scene that was cut for budget reasons that took place inside the club, and that probably would have cleared it up, but since that was excised from the script, Gunn probably should have found another way to get it in there. On first viewing, I didn't get how Sarah and Jacques even met, how she wound up with this drug czar. I do like the idea, at least on paper, that at the end of the film, after Frank literally saves Sarah, she stays with him for a couple months out of a sense of obligation, but realizes her mistake in marrying him in the first place, that you can't marry your hero if all you have together is that one-sided dynamic. In Golden Age comics, the hero gets the girl because he saves her, but relationships in real life are more complicated, just like the reasons people do bad things are more complicated. You know, unless you're Jacques, who's the typical bad guy because the movie needs one of those, and I assume there's more to him, some reason he has no empathy and treats people as means to his own ends, but again, I only see him from Frank's eyes, so I don't know. I've mostly avoided talking about Libby because of the elephant in the room, which I don't want to spend a ton of time on because it's a symptom of another problem, which I've already covered strategically toward the beginning of the review so I didn't have to dwell on one of the most uncomfortable and bewildering scenes I've ever sat through in a superhero movie. A little more on that in a minute. But Libby is the funniest character in the movie and potentially the most interesting. Until... A, I realize I'm never going to get anything about how she became this neurotic, obsessive-compulsive, impulsive, sex-addicted, antisocial whack job. And B, the movie totally loses me with the aforementioned elephant in the room. Libby is the kid sidekick who just wants to be like the hero, who figures out who he is, kind of like Tim Drake with Batman, except way easier. And she's a young mirror for Frank, the kid he needs to mentor and set a good example for, or she's going to make all the same mistakes he has. She's kind of a younger version of him, except female and attractive. So while she has a lot of the same hang-ups and insecurities, the world isn't repelled by her and doesn't shun her in the same way because she can hide behind the veneer of a regular, well-adjusted young woman. There's maybe some frustration lurking between the lines here from Gunn about the ways in which attractive women maybe have it easier than men. Libby is just as out of touch, just as self-absorbed, just as hard to talk to, but she has tons of friends, I mean, maybe they're not really her friends. These are your friends. 
but are they real friends? And she can get laid as much as she wants and does. The social politics there are interesting, and I like the initial dynamic with Frank and Libby. Libby, who idolizes Frank for doing something that's never been done before, and who romanticizes the costume and wants to get physical with Frank. And Frank, who wants to keep the relationship professional because he's trying to practice what he preaches and doesn't want to commit a mortal sin, infidelity. Especially since, you know, the whole reason he got into this was to save his wife. And I guess it's interesting that Libby is the only other woman besides Sarah that's ever shown Frank any romantic interest, despite how arguably superficial it is, and she's emotionally detached like he is. I also like that his sidekick is the comic nerd who's always wanted to see superheroes come to life, like you might expect him to be, and she's the opposite of what you expect that to look like, because all kinds of people can look like all kinds of people. But beyond that, Libby seems to be a lot of male fantasy wish fulfillment at the detriment of the story. What, for instance, is up with the scene in the car where she has her top off? Somebody please explain this to me. Is there any reason besides the movie wanting to feature Ellen Page wearing a bra outside in broad daylight? I sat through this three times and I'm not even seeing a contrivance for it. She tells Frank there's this guy who keyed her car, Jerry. So they go bash his face in and she almost kills him. They're arguing outside of his house. She's still wearing her top and nothing seems wrong with the costume at all. If there was blood on it, I don't see it. Then in the car, Frank fires her. And as they're talking, we see that her top is gone. She crosses her arms across her chest modestly, clearly wishing she has something else to put on, and there doesn't seem to be anything in the car. Then they fight the thugs from the gas station, and she runs one down, still without her top. And at this horrifying sight, people applaud which I find unlikely. When they get back to Frank's garage and she tries to put the moves on him for the first time, she's wearing a totally different outfit. Did they stop somewhere to get her clothes? What is going on? I do like this exchange though. She suggests they make out and Frank is appalled by the idea. I just thought we could celebrate. So bake a cake. So now the elephant. This is where, like Frank bashing in the line-butting guy's skull, the movie loses me and I'm no longer sympathizing with this character at all. Like I said, it's up there in the hardest things to sit through category. There's stuff in El Super Beast, though, that wins out, but nothing in live action that I can think of. It's even more disquieting than that weird, playful, near-sex scene in Howard the Duck. By a lot. It's just another the audience won't believe we went here scene. It's shocking and disturbing, but I almost can't be offended by it because it's trying so hard to be offensive. Like, okay, I get it. You think you're freaking me out with this. I almost want to ignore that it's even in the movie because it makes no sense character-wise or narratively. Libby effectively rapes Frank. Yeah, that happens. Didn't see that coming, did you? I'm fine with the story point that she really wants to sleep with the world's only superhero and it's a constant point of contention between them. Considering the first scene we get with Sarah where she's not remotely interested in having sex with him, that's an intriguing problem to have. There's this cute girl that's all over Frank, finally, but his ethics and his mounting self-respect are standing in the way. But this is just insane. She tries to seduce him, she reasons with him, saying that it doesn't count as cheating on his wife because he can wear the mask and be the Crimson Bolt, and the Crimson Bolt isn't married to Sarah. And if he'd gone with that logic and consented, it would be easier to go along with, even though it's still clearly just there to make the audience as uncomfortable as it can. And finally, she just jumps him. 
He's pleading for her to stop, says no over and over again. How is this okay? How am I supposed to care at all what happens to this character after she does this to her partner? Yes, he doesn't throw her off until after it's over when he could obviously overpower her. And yes, he kind of gives in, even though he has his hands over his face in shame the whole time. But I mean, this is pretty screwed up. James Gunn calls it rape in the commentary. It's there just because it's not okay and it ruins the story. It watches like it can't figure out how to give Frank the motivation to finally storm the castle and try to rescue his wife. So that happens and then he sees his wife's face and vomit and then he's like, I'll never be ready, so I'm going to do it now. It freaks him out so much he doesn't even care about caution or even possibly dying anymore. And now he's riddled with grief for doing this to his wife. I mean, wow. Again, though, it leads to an exchange I like. What if they kill you? That's their business. So I have no idea how to feel when she gets her face blown off. Again, because it's there to be shocking more than anything. It doesn't feel like the movie is making her pay for her sins. It plays like a tragedy. And like I'm supposed to feel bad for her. And like it's Frank's wake-up call that after he saves his wife, he has to stop this. At that point, I can't give the movie any benefit of the doubt as a serious narrative or suspend any disbelief. So I'm almost too numb to even be appalled by the inappropriately happy ending and the way the movie seems to maybe sort of condone Frank's actions. I'm not screaming, how dare you put this in a movie or angry that Gunn seems to just be trying to see what he can get away with and still have have a career after this, a practice that came back to haunt him when he was temporarily fired for making Guardians movies because of 10-year-old tweeted jokes about unmentionable sexual practices. I was just numbed by it. Oh, this isn't a story anymore. This is a thing the director just really wanted an excuse to put on film. Before we get to my score, let's find out what some of the members of the Secret Superhero Screen Society had to say on Facebook. That's our Patreon-exclusive Facebook group. Kareem Roberts says, I love Wilson from The Office, and his performance is extremely interesting here. This movie feels like a side story of kick-ass, underrated. Saqib Tariq just says, Shut up, crime! Dean Waldhart, I love Super. It's a really weird, offbeat movie that's a lot of fun and has some great performances. I'm giving Super a 3.5 out of 4. Justin Hayes, its style is uniquely its own. Nothing is quite like Super, and uh, though it won't be everyone's cup of tea, for me it's a very good time. I find it laugh-out-loud hilarious, genuinely heartwarming, and just bizarre enough to be brilliant. Still my favorite of Gunn's films. 3.25 out of 4. James Gunn has come a long way. I hope if he returns to making independent films, he's not making stuff like this, or at least he's consistent about what the project is and I don't have to be in his head to appreciate it. In the commentary, he says, if you don't like it, F you. Well, F me then. There's a lot of potential here, but by the end, it's a confused mess, and it likes it that way. It's not the sort of movie that fell apart in production, that had no vision or direction. Gunn says in the commentary, this is exactly what he set out to make, that it was scripted and storyboarded just this way. So I guess a confused mess is exactly what he set out to make. So even though it doesn't communicate what it's trying to do to my satisfaction, Gunn got what he was after. I'm glad, but I don't think it works. Good for him, but I'm still giving Super a 1.5 out of 4. Ba, ba.